Hello, strangers, and welcome to the Strange Horizons podcast for September 11th, 2017. I'm your host and fearless leader, Anaya Lay. Before we dive into this week's podcast, I just want to give you an update to remind you that the Strange Horizons 2017 Fun Drive is happening right now, and you can donate at any moment, including this one. You don't even have to pause the podcast if you can multitask. This is where the vast majority of the funds we use to bring you stories and poetry and articles and reviews every week come from, and we need that in order to keep doing it. So if you like us and you would like us to keep going, please donate or help spread the word about the fun drive. Both are hugely appreciated, and I want to extend a big, giant thank you to everyone who has already done either or both things. Now, back to the story. This week's story is Watershed by Allison Jamison Lucy. Allison holds degrees in biochemistry and studio art and is a graduate of the Alpha Writers Workshop. She's currently pursuing a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania, studying the eggs of tiny fish. Her byline has appeared in Pelos Biology and Beneath Ceaseless Skies. Outside of the lab, she writes, illustrates, and fosters sick shelter cats. Now, settle in. Let's begin. Watershed by Allison Jameson Lucy In the early dawn, Koha sends Morami out to hunt red-finned roach. She stands knee-deep in cold water as fog hangs in silent drifts over the river. The dry reeds in the shallows collect delicate collars of ice where stem meets eddy. The only break in the stillness is the splash of Morami heaving her long, slick body over a sandbar or shallow rock. Morami swims to Koha, a shining fish grasped in her needle teeth. Koha rewards her hunting eel with a piece of chopped lamprey from the pouch at her hip and drops the roach into the woven basket she secured among the icy reeds. Morami darts back out into the wide current. The water licks the life away from Koha's sturdy calves, turning them into posts. She thumps her thighs with her fists. Her blood reluctantly revives its flow into her feet. Koha can feel pebbles under her toes again. Twenty feet upstream, Morami's tail breaks the surface as she thrashes her way under a clot of driftwood in pursuit of a fish. Koha presses her palm against the chill surface of the water and feels it resist her. How pleasant it would be to stand atop the water, to command the river's flow and dictate what drowned and what was buoyed to the surface. How fine to be finished with being wet. When she pulls her hand away from the water, it follows her, clinging thickly to her fingers. Koha shakes it away and banishes such reckless desires. Water should stay safely in the river where it belongs. Koa thumps her thighs again and tilts her head to see Morami under the water's reflection. Morami has caught eleven fish, and the fog is burned off when Koa sees a figure standing in the center of the river. There, the current cuts a deeper groove, twice the height of a man. The figure has long hair, bound into feminine plates over each ear. 
He carries no pack. Koa hears in her mind the sharp voice of her aunts. Do not let your sons and daughters walk the rivers. The water will empty them out into the sea. Aye, you, Koho yells. Come over from there. The figure turns and stumbles on nothing. She falls, one hand flung out to catch herself against the water. She hangs there, her body bowed over the river, chest heaving. Koa hits the water three times to call Morami back to her. Morami is Koha's favorite hunter, but she will nip at the fingers of strangers. Eel bites with their many punctures drop infection. Eight feet long and as thick around as Koa's neck, Morami could drown a man if Koa asked her to. This woman is walking to the sea. Koa looks away, into her floating basket of fish. One roach is still gasping. Its gill covers clench and release against its sides. There's a little blood where Marami tore its scales. The blood matches its red fins. As the woman walks to the shore, Koa notes her bruised feet. They are bare. One of her toenails is loose and blackened. The surface of the water is gentle, but there are rocks just under the surface, dark and difficult to see. If your mother, your father, chooses the river, there is nothing you can do to save them. To choose the river over the love of a family on the shore is to deserve the sea. What do you want? the river woman asks. The river woman's voice is dried out like something has flaked away the meat of it and left only skin and scales. She must be shorter than Koa, but with Koa standing on the riverbed, she towers. Koa wants the river woman to stop and tend to her own feet. Koa wants to pour humanity back into this empty woman until she no longer points toward the sea. The river woman doesn't want to hear those things from Koa. She will need a more mundane request. Hmm, mm, I have a new eel pond to build. Muddy work for me, Koa says, making a show of squinting upwards like a wary aunt at the market. Your river walkers are good for that, yeah? I will feed you stew and let you sleep by the hearth. I can board your hunting eel or your pack fish if you have one. The river woman shakes her head. No eel. Good, cheaper for me, Koa says, and wades out of the river. The woman follows her feet padding along the water's surface. Your name? Ihiteru, the woman says. A name like the call of a water bird. Ihiteru, Koa repeats, and wraps her heart around it like a fist. Koa's single-room house is nestled between two eel ponds. It sits on stilts that hold it a foot above the marshy ground to foil the hopping, flightless crickets that will chew through any container and eat anything that holds still for long enough. Koa settles Morami in her pond on the north side of the house. In the center of the house is a stacked cairn of stones that passes through the floor and ceiling to form a hearth and a chimney. Koa gets to work gutting the morning's fish. Ihiteru folds up in front of the hearth and goes motionless, more like a pile of rags than like a woman. If Koa can save this woman, if she can lower the price the river asks, perhaps she too could... No. Koa looks down at her hands, her short, steady fingers, 
the row of red punctures where she grabbed a torrent fish and was stuck by its dorsal spines. She's not made for forbidden things. Koa slips her knife under the gills of a roach and presses the handle with the heel of her hand to crunch through its spine. Then she slides her fingers into the fish's belly and hooks the guts free in one knot of viscera. The back pond is all sludge, Koa explains as she works. It needs flushing out and filling with stone or my house will sink. Then I want to dig a new pond closer to the river. Iteru blinks slowly, her eyelids shuddering down startle Koa. Iteru's eyes are such flat black that Koa forgot she could close them. Koa spends too much time with fish and not enough with people. She guts another roach and puts the intestines into a bowl to become eel food. How long will that take? Koa asks. Three days, Ihiteru says. Murami swims to the surface when Koa and Ihiteru pass, hoping for treats. Koa named Murami for the moon. She has a white spot on her head like a thumbprint. In the right light, she looks like she's caught the moon's reflection in her jaws and is carrying it back to Koa's basket. Koa tosses Murami a handful of fish guts, then shows Ihiteru to the back pond. It is choked with algae, soft, thick, and rotting. Brown reeds poke through it like pin bones. The canals that should bring fresh water to the pond are just as clogged. Ihiteru walks onto the pond, her footprints leaving narrow wells of clear, dark water. She kneels abruptly in the center, dips her cupped hands into the water, and bends her head to drink. Koa wrinkles her nose. By now the icy dawn has lifted, and even in the cool midday of early spring, she can smell the back of the throat dead smell of stagnant pond. But Ihiteru rocks to her feet and tosses her braids back. There's life in her face. What did you do to this pond? Did you mean to ruin it? Ihiteru asks. I raised eels in it. Eels shit. Plants grow in eel shit, Koa says, flaring with annoyance. Ihiteru laughs. In that moment, she sounds like a whole woman. Koa loses hold of being cross. Ihiteru walks down Koa's canal towards the outlet in the river while Koa follows her on the bank. At the mouth of the canal, Ihiteru raises her hand, palm down. The river leaps up for her like a wood hen eager for grain. Then she closes her fist and pulls. The water follows. Canal water bursts into the river in a fan of thick green. Go to the pond and knock free anything that's not flowing along, Ihiteru says, pulling the water again. Her wrists are thin, but when she pulls, there's muscle under her skin, and she does not look weak. Koa strips the branches from a sapling and uses it to prod clumps of algae stuck in the reeds. Ihiteru's work downstream draws fresh water from upriver and washes away what Koa knocks free. Gently, Koa sets down her stick. She opens her hand over the pond, like Ihiteru, and calls to the water. The pond water mounds up obligingly. Koa snatches her hand back like she's discovered a biting crab instead of eggs in a shorebird burrow. The hump of water falls flat, swirling another clump of algae free. 
Poa feeds Ihitero fish and a fiddlehead fern stew for dinner. Ihitero has gone strange and hollow again after clearing the back pond. She moves in the moments between Koa's glances. Ihitero empties her bowl with ravenous speed, but Koa does not see her lift the rim to her lips even one time. There is an old suspicion that a river walker can pass on their draw to the sea with a touch. When Ihitero left, no one would have pressed her forehead to their breast. No one grasped her around her waist or by the crook of her arm to keep her on the bank. After they've eaten, Koa cracks open two earthenware jars in the case of strong root wine she traded for a pair of trained eels. She leads Ihitero out to the narrow porch around her house and sits with her feet dangling in Morami's pond. The water tries to leach the warmth from Koa's body, but she has a heavy quilted shirt stuffed with gravy feathers, and Morami likes the company. Morami bumps Koa's toes and wraps happily around her ankles. Ihiteru rests her heels on the water, her beaten feet dry. I have a salve for mashed nails, Koa says, pointing her chin at Ihiteru's toes. Comes in handy when you build things yourself. It's a stupid suspicion, and one that pushes river walkers away from their families. The only way to catch water's love for emptying is to walk above it. People can't get into you the way a river can. With Ihiteru's feet in her lap, Koa can feel how light she is. Ihiteru doesn't seem to notice she's given something away. Koa frowns and digs her thumb into a dark bruise, rubbing in salve. Iteru hisses but doesn't jerk her foot away. Instead, she takes a drink of Koa's wine and drops a hand over the edge of Koa's porch to tap Morami on the nose. The next day, Iteru uses the river to roll boulders into Koa's old pond. The great black stones move in unsteady lurches, their heavy, uneven bulks straining against gravity until they fall with booming splashes. The stone's passage upsets swarms of newly hatched sandflies. Koa burns a bundle of dried crane's bill leaves to banish the biting flies. A few stragglers land on Koa's ankles and she swats them irritably. Itero is quiet when the work is done. She sits with her back to the hearth, her hands unmoving in her lap, while Koa mends tears in her fine-meshed elving net. The smell of crane's bill lingers through the evening, singed and tangy. Well after moonrise, Koa wakes up to wring out her blood cloth in the river. It puts her in a foul mood. If Ihitero can run streamlets uphill, maybe she can make the blood flow back into Koa's belly and save her the monthly washing. Back at the house, Ihitero is no longer curled up tightly in front of the hearth. Koa finds her standing on Morami's pond, facing north towards the sea. Ihitero is singing lowly her voice like a stick rasped across gravel. Walker, walker, stay away from my daughter. You want her wanter to go to the water. Her kiss in a bucket, her heart in a cup. How many hens has the hawk picked up? It is a child's counting game, sung in time while a rock or nut is passed between small hands. In E. Terry's voice it sounds broken, like a minnow with a missing fin swimming in circles. Come back to the house, Koa calls. Ihitero flinches and falls into the water with a splash. Koa winces, hoping she didn't wake Morami. 
With ungainly strokes, Itero swims to shore and hauls herself back onto land. Koa smiles to herself. She's a better swimmer than Ihiteru, stronger and more graceful. She learned to swim with her whole body, like an eel. Ihiteru swims like a drowning cricket, all limbs. You can't sleep wet like that, Koa says. The night is cold and Ihiteru shakes. Koa wraps Ihiteru in a blanket, patterned with red and brown diamonds and warmed by the hearthstone. Ihiteru presses drops of water from the ends of her plates and flicks them onto the hot stones in front of the hearth, where they sizzle away in an instant. What were you going to do about that pond without me? Ihiteru asks eventually. I have a bucket, Koa says. You can do anything with a bucket if you're willing to make a lot of trips. Ihiteru laughs softly. I can do more than a bucket, she says. What can you do? Koa asks. It's a dangerous, stupid question. It's better not to know what could be. But Ihiteru is a vibrant spark, even muted as she is, and Koa must know what she was ablaze. Ihiteru's eyes glint back the orange coal light. I knew a walker who carved an entire glacier into lace, so delicate and blue it looked as if he had caged the sky. I once braided a river the length of a valley, but mostly I made wells. Deep in the earth there are caverns with lakes so deep and clear they awaken an unquenchable thirst in your heart. I brought water, rivulet by rivulet, back up through the limestone for people, for villages and homesteads and their thirsty plots of lily tubers. I haven't ever seen anything like that, Koa says. If she had... Perhaps she and Ihiteru would be walking to the sea together, hand in hand. Ihiteru's head turns like a bird's. Her attention is beak-sharp. No river walkers live here? Koa shrugs. Ihiteru looks stricken. She brings the back of her hand up to her mouth and bites it, her teeth a flash of white in the dark. There used to be a community on the delta of this river, she says, from behind her knuckles. You would have seen them. They had houses of rushes and lapwing nests. They made a living harvesting salt from the estuary. All were great friends of fishermen. Maybe they moved, Koa suggests. Ihiteru shakes her head. They've gone. We are diminishing. I shouldn't have been surprised. We leave earlier and earlier each generation. No one listens when we say that river walkers used to grow old. It is so obvious. Iteru shuts her eyes. They think it is better if we leave one by one until we are all gone. Where do you go? Downhill, Iteru says. And then, Koa asks, moved by curiosity to follow the question to its end. I don't know. We don't come back. To make Koa's new pond, Iteru dances up a wave. She sends water and roaring gouts to carve out a canal, then knots it into a wide, swirling eddy, plucking dirt and rushes out of the earth and washing them away. When Iteru's done, there are no tasks left for Koa to offer her. Koa can see Iteru's longing for the sea as if it is a cord around her neck. 
If Koa only had more time, she could saw through that cord, or loop her fingers in the line and strain until Itero had enough slack to stay. If Koa could do that, maybe she could walk atop the river herself. If she could lessen the cost, it would be a fair trade. Stay until the season turns properly, Koa says. I will take a boat to catch glass eels on the delta. It is difficult. You could help. When an eel fills with eggs, she cannot hunt. She will escape any pond, wriggling over mud and stone until she reaches the river. Then she will swim out to sea. The eels never come back, but their young return. Miniature eels, as clear as well water and no longer than Koa's smallest finger, swim inland from the sea. Koa catches them in nets and grows them into hunters. In her ponds, the larger eels eat the smaller ones, leaving the finest alive for Koa to train. Eels are not sentimental about their siblings. Someday, Murami will grow fat and swim away from Koa's pond. Someday, Koa will collect small, transparent eels with white thumbprints on their heads. How do you catch them? Iiteru asks. They roll in on the tide and I scoop them in a net. Koa moves her hand to show the placement of the water in the net. They are bad swimmers and lazy, so they only reach my net when the water moves, and the tide only comes a few times a day. With you pulling the water instead... I will not spend a week up to my neck in brackish silt. Itero is silent. There is a sheen of sweat in the hollow of her throat from where she exerted herself calling up the river. Koa bites the insides of her cheeks. Do you want to go to the sea? Koa asks. No, Itero says at last, wretched and drained. I want to stay and fish for eels with you. That night, once Iteru has lain down to sleep, Koa rises silently and arranges earthenware jars in her doorway where Iteru will kick them over if she leaves. In the morning, the jars are upright. Koa shamefacedly collects them while Iteru replates her hair for the day. Koa teaches Iteru how to mend nets, showing her first how to pull a net taut and count the broken meshes. Koa cleans up stray threads around the edges of each tear with quick twists of her short knife while Ihiteru furrows her brow over simpled knots. For dinner, there are whole fish stuffed with dried fruit and sewn shut again with twine, grilled over the hearth fire. When they are finished, Ihiteru fidgets, arranging her leftover fish spine, her knife, and Koa's wooden net needle in a line. She adjusts them so they all point in the same direction. North. Koa realizes. Iteru directs anything placed in her hands toward the sea. Koa draws Iteru away from the leftovers of their meal and engages her with identifying the calls of night birds. Iteru says the inland, where she is from. The hopping fanrin says cheat-cheat instead of tip-tip, and the grebi have red feet. Koa presses her hands together in delight that Iteru has noticed birds. Koa does not mention gulls or terns. She cannot trust Ihiteru enough to remind her of shorebirds. Again, Koa puts earthenware jars across her threshold, guilt slick like oil in her mouth.
Koa wakes in the blue dawn to the clatter of breaking pottery. Wait, Koa cries, but Itero is darting across Koa's marsh. Her feet skip over canals and ponds. Koa must run crossways from Itero to reach footbridges, and Itero draws further ahead. Koa skids to a stop and hauls on the windlass that lifts the gate to Murami's pond. Murami knows the sound of the start of a hunt and noses impatiently at the gate. As soon as it rises enough for her to wedge her head through, she rushes free toward the river. By the time Koa reaches the bank, she is winded. Iteru is well downstream, a solitary figure with no pack. She moves like it hurts. All around the river is broad and silver. A bellbird hops to the branches overhanging the river, searching for insects. It sings with a pure, piercing voice. Iteru said she didn't want to go, but she is still going. Koa should let her go. A river walker will not stay for love or wealth or duty, and Koa has only a one-room house and five ponds full of eels. But she wants so badly to lessen the river's price. She cannot stand the sight of Ihitero walking alone toward the sea. Murami rises behind Ihitero, a column of wet gray muscle. Her white belly flashes as she lifts half her length out of the water. She takes the collar of Ihitero's shirt in her teeth and drags her down, bringing her back for Koa. Koa holds Ihitero on the riverbank by both wrists. Ihitero, soaked and bleeding from a scrape on her thigh, struggles like a wild thing with a hook through its eye. Morami keeps a watchful patrol in the shallows. You don't want to go. You don't have to go. Stop it. Stop thrashing, Koa says. It's a choice that's already made, Itero says, still pulling. I made it when I stepped onto the river and it bore my weight. Come back to the house. Murami will catch you and bring you back as many times as you need. She will. She is a good eel. She will mind her teeth if I tell her. Itero tears free and stands at the edge of the water, chest heaving. I can't, she says. It's done. She steps backwards onto the water. Murami lifts her head, wary. Far upstream there are people who let Ihitero leave them with no supplies to sustain her and no escort for company. Koa imagines them, sad-eyed mothers in skirts woven from mountain cotton and uncles drinking root wine. Ihitero convinced them she died the moment she stepped onto the water. It would not be so bad to live a numbered set of years commanding the water. Sitting before the hearth, Itero made it sound magnificent. Koa presses one foot against the river. The water holds her up. I have no one to leave behind, she says. I could keep you company. I could carve glaciers. Itero rushes forward and pushes Koa back onto land. Koa remembers the strength in Iteru's thin arms as she falls on her back in the reeds. Iteru's black eyes are wide with horror. What do you think you're doing? You need to stay and farm your beloved eels. There's no love in glaciers, Koa. Koa brings her eels to market in an outrigger canoe with a net strung between the float and the gunwale. Not all eels are as well-behaved as Morami, 
so they travel in the net while Morami keeps pace alongside the boat. It's lonely, and would be more lonely without Morami along to hunt with. You should not have to go alone, Koa says, without even anyone to tell you to mind your poor feet. Yitero stands over her, face knotted up. I won't let you walk the river, she insists. What if you had gone to the sea before me, and I had walked past only an abandoned place in the shape of an eel farm? Who will be kind to the next river walker if I take you with me? Koa had imagined Yitero walking beside her canoe, traveling together to sell Koa's eels. She had wanted to buy Yitero's skink leather shoes and bright ribbons to braid into her hair. It hurts that Yitero does not know she is already special to Koa. Yitero sees the hurt in Koa's face and speaks again, more gently. I needed you to be here. That's why you have to stay. It will be so hard if Koa has to do this again and again. She imagines a series of eroded-away men and women, all with Iteru's dark eyes. It is not fair that Koa will have to care for each of them and lose them in turn. But no one else is doing it, this thing Iteru needs. I will take you to the Delta, at least, Koa says stubbornly. Iteru throws her hands out, like she can press Koa back into the bank with only her will. No, she says. I have a canoe, Koa explains. If you will wait for me to rig it, I will take that instead. Itero sits down abruptly in the mud and covers her face with her hands. Koa can't tell if she is shaking from crying or laughing or the cold. Itero is wet all over. It's likely the cold making her tremble. Still, Koa props herself up and settles a hand on Itero's knee. Maybe the glass eels will come in early this year. I will bring nets, in case. Murami's tail flicks the surface of the river, sending a jewel of water flying over Koa's canoe. Koa casts her gaze down the river, dreading the sight of the delta ahead. It is not a happy journey. And yet, beside her, Yitero steps over the ripples in the canoe's wake her spine unbent and the bruises on her feet starting to heal. The midday sun has melted the ice from the islets around the edges of Koa's elving net. Under the clear water, the white spot on Morami's head flashes as she chases a red-finned roach. Welcome back. I love how much of this story is about place and position relative to something else. It's not just that a big element of the magic is being able to stand on the water instead of falling into it, but Koa's ability to empathize and reach out to the river walkers when everybody else just turns them away and gives up on them as a lost cause. It's because Koa already feels that same call. She could be a river walker, too. But she also has her tie to her eel farm. That's very much a place of the water, which is why you have the whole discussion around the bucket. And it's how Koa finds the compromise so that she can be what the other river walkers need her to be. What caught your attention about the story? 
Go to the website and leave a comment, either on the story itself or on the podcast, and let us know. While you're there, don't forget to check out our progress in the fun drive, and if you haven't yet, you can still donate. We have a drawing for prizes like we do every year, and we have bonus content that we are releasing as we hit each of our goals. Thank you one more time to everyone who has donated and everyone who has helped spread the word. We love to hear from you, and we want to keep doing our work, and so we appreciate how much you're helping us. That's all for right now. Until next time, stay strange.